The thought of a salty plum makes your mouth water. Good on, may I? They're a preserved plum. It's like weird, it's sweet almost. If you're a local from Darwin, you definitely know what a salty plum is. It's a little bit sour, with sweetness. I like it. One of the fun things about having a salty plum is sharing with someone who hasn't had one and watching their face screw up and their nose and their mouth go, whoa, what is this? They're so weird. They're like soft and then they're hot and then they're salty. It's nothing like this before. Yeah, it's really sour. <laughs> but I think that's, that's everybody's first um, response. But then after a while, um, once you get through that, they're actually, yeah, they're very Moorish. Not not bad. Mm, that's good. That's different. It's weird, but I like it. It's a perfect combination of taste. Hmm? It's true. Saudi plums are very Moorish. They're a quintessentially Darwin thing brought here by Chinese migrants and have become a symbol of our wonderful multicultural community. That's why we named this podcast Salty Plum Stories. 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 Yum. My name's Nicole Brown. I'm a proud Larrakia woman and my people are the traditional owners of Darwin, or Garamilla as we call it. Over six episodes, you're going to journey through a rich tapestry of cultures, food, religion, art and ingenuity. I'll introduce you to six amazing people from six different cultures who talk about how they came to be living in Darwin. In this episode, you'll meet Daryl Chin, whose ancestors first came to the Northern Territory all the way from China in the 1880s. You might be surprised to learn that back in the 1880s, Chinese migrants outnumbered Europeans by as many as six to one it was really the telegraph, overland telegraph coming through that started it all. And I guess in putting the telegraph line through, obviously they found some uh, geology that was favourable for gold. And so through that Pine Creek area, um, gold was discovered. Um, Australia was known as uh, New Gold Mountain. And I guess the Chinese came up to uh, partake in the diggings there. After that, um, the railway line that was built um, also uh, used uh, indentured Chinese labour to help build that as well. Hi, I'm uh, Daryl Chin. I'm an ABC, Australian-born Chinese, uh, third generation born in Australia. Uh, my grandfather was, uh, my father's side was born in Australia, in Darwin actually, and uh, my father and myself and my children. I'm uh, Vice President of the Changhua Society. In the 1990s, the Changhua Society created the Northern Territory Chinese Museum next to the Chinese temple that was built way back in the 1880s. The museum is a fascinating glimpse of the NT's Chinese history with personal stories, family trees and a replica model of the old Chinatown. So Chinatown was basically from Kavanagh Street, uh, where it ends now, it used to go through the, uh, the Civic Centre. So it wasn't uh, huge, a couple of blocks, but um, there was a lot of businesses in there. Uh, general stores, laundry, sewing, um, the like, so providing clothes and, and everything like that. So the Chinese were involved in all those industries. Chinatown was a hive of activity, with pig stores plonked alongside noisy bars and busy Chinese merchant stores. There are stories of salubrious alleyways and opium dens, but that aside, for the Chinese community, Chinatown was their home. It pretty much was the centre of, of their life. They either lived in, in Chinatown with their families, um, in behind their shops, um, or certainly they played as children in Chinatown. 
um, there were gangs of them and uh, obviously here yeah, all children have gangs <laughs> and um, you know they there they uh, ran amok in Chinatown um, our families have been here and, and have stayed here ever since the Fong Suwing family Chin Mi Liang the Fong Ding family, Low Dep Chit, Chin Toy, Chin Dung Leung, Mu Yat Fa, Yuan Yat Hing, the Atoy family known as the Chong Ah Yu, Fong Slit Chin, and Li Hang Gong. Li Hang Gong family are most famously known because of one of the descendants being uh, a European, Henry the White Chinaman. <laughs> he was uh, adopted in by the family and uh, spoke pretty much perfect Chinese. We see ourselves as very much part of the fabric of, uh, of Darwin and the Territory. They are part of the NT's fabric, despite the uncomfortable backdrop of the government's white Australia policy, which limited non-British migration to Australia from 1901 right up until 1973. In Darwin, Chinatown existed from 1874 to World War II, and then it was gone. From the photographic evidence we have, um, Chinatown didn't get flattened by the bombs. Um, we believe that Chinatown was purposely um, re <laughs> redesigned <laughs> through that war period. Um, a lot of the a lot of the the, uh, the buildings were were bulldozed over. I guess um, we believe just so that the Chinese wouldn't uh, reform again in in that sort of enclave of, of of a Chinatown. Most people were evacuated just before Daum was bombed by the Japanese during World War Two and then returned to the city after the war. For many Chinese people, returning was an extra shock. All land was taken back by the government um, during the war period. Um, when the uh, families came back, they were provided with land, not all centralised in Chinatown. So land, they were spread out across the town. Families lost their houses, their gardens and their possessions in a cruel twist to their long-awaited homecoming. Yet Daryl's made his own sort of peace with a decision that affected his parents, his grandparents and his community. I guess they had their reasons to, to not uh, want that sort of um, environment to establish again. So a bit of a loss, but at the same time, I guess, yeah, we all move on. And um, in some respects, you know, that Chinatown, that, that enclave, which you see uh, in a lot of other cities, uh, didn't re-establish um, and we have a much, well in my mind, much nicer multicultural uh, city, um, possibly because of it. One aspect of Chinese culture many people are familiar with is the dragon dance or lion dance and Daryl says that there is an important distinction between the two. Too often it's just called a dragon dance. Um, there are actually two different mythical beings, uh, a lion and a dragon. They perform for different reasons, but they're also very different. The dragon is, is long. It has many people that um, make the dragon come alive. Um, the lion is only two people, head and a tail. The dragon dance, it's all about the dragon trying to capture the pearl. Pearl of Wisdom, and it, so it, you will see it following around a ball, and the dragon is, is trying to, to capture the pearl. Generally, the moves are nice and smooth, and involve the, the dragon getting itself into knots, and, and you know, up and down, and slow and fast, and all different movements done by seven to nine people. The dragon itself, mythical being, has uh, parts of all different animals. 
antlers from from one scale from a fish. Um, it's it's one of the highest um, animals in in our uh, uh, religious um, hierarchy. Um, only topped out by the unicorn, um, but um, it's very auspicious. Uh, the dragon. The dragon dance is generally performed for Lunar New Year, the Moon Festival, and other religious celebrations while the lion is performed by two people and makes an appearance more often, both for Lunar New Year and to bless occasions like weddings, business openings and community events throughout the year. The traditional lion dance is very much um, around the martial arts forms, the kung fu forms. So when you see it dance in that traditional way, it'll be very uh, deliberate in all of its actions and movements. Um, but nowadays it's become very much an art form. The movements are very smooth, bringing the lion much more alive. Um, a lot of the facial expressions with the eyes and the mouth and the ears, and also very acrobatic. And it's pretty much performed more as an as a, as a entertaining sport uh, than so much as the religious aspect. Both of those are accompanied by um, drums, gongs and cymbals. So yeah, very colourful, very loud. Obviously the noise to scare away the, the, the bad spirits. Um, the costume of the lion itself also to scare away uh, the evil spirit that came down to the village, uh, which is what the, what the myth is all about. Sometimes when people migrate to another country, their cultures and customs are kind of frozen in time. We have become a time capsule. So those, our ancestors that came out had all the custom and tradition from that period. They've passed it on to their children, their children, their children. So we haven't evolved our custom and tradition since that time. China and all the rest of the world have moved on since then and things have changed so much. The cultural revolutions and the likes have really taken a lot of that history um, and that, that cultural aspect, religious aspect, away from those in China now. However, we've also, out of necessity, had to move some of them along a little bit. While we are snapshot in time, um, there is necessity for things to change and, and we've made changes along the way. And one specifically I can talk about is our custom or tradition where the females never used to partake in the lion dance. They weren't allowed to dance the lion, they weren't allowed to, to play any instruments or be involved pretty much at all. Over time, you know, if you had the ability to bring on some of the, the girls in the group, it um, would be so much better. Um, plus they come along and they also are really fascinated by the lion dance as well and they, they get involved. So up until recently, um, the girls in our troop used to do everything except for when there was an official blessing. But, but just last year we went back to the temple and we asked for heavenly advice and specifically we asked could the female members of the troop do blessings. And they came back with a positive yes. So that to me has, to us as, as, as a group, really just enables us to go that next step and, and the involvement of the girls is just so much more inclusive. Are you curious about what Daryl meant when he said asking for heavenly advice? Because I sure am. We have a way to seek advice from our, from our gods 
and I guess first and foremost, it's it's not something you go to uh, frivolously. I mean, generally we will try and sort things out ourselves amongst the committee or amongst our, the elders in our community. Um, but if not, then we will seek heavenly advice. Pretty much asking the question of the gods. Um, there's uh, some what we call kidney sticks in the in the in the temple. They've got one flat side and one one curved side, and you throw them up as you would throw two up. <laughs> coins, throw them up in the air, they land on the ground. They obviously have three ways to land, so with the curve sides up it's it's a yes, the curve sides down it's a no, and with one up one down it, it's like either um, you're asking me a frivolous question I don't want to answer you, you go and make up your own mind. It's pretty much a, a, a non-committed. So. so what we do is we write a question down, we present that to them, then we go and throw the kidney sticks and that gives you the result. So, okay, people will say, yeah, that's just luck. Yeah, it is just luck, but who's who's influencing those sticks to land the way that they are? Um, and, you know, we um, the main thing, I guess, in it all is you believe in it, and when the answer is given to you, you must abide by it. You know, don't ask if you don't like the answer. <laughs> um, we're just entering into the main part of the, the centre the well which goes up to the heavens it's a large urn where you burn your incense as you pray to seek some advice or show your respects the main altar has five deities on it and to the right is is the goddess of mercy and to the left is another Taoist Confucius uh, deity Um, there's large brass urns in front where you burn your incense uh, with the candles and the the incense sticks and off to the left um, we have the, the bell and the drum which you use to call the, the gods when you're praying to them, which basically says, can you please listen to my prayer? And then you come and pray in front of the, the deities. So it just lets them know that, hey, you've got something to say. The temple is not operated like a church. There is no priest or, or a minister. Every different ethnic group, being the Hakka, the Hengsan, the Siyap, they have different ways that they will worship to the gods and certain order and the way they do things but pretty much all the same you're just sort of um, paying your respects to the gods and and you're here to either ask a question or or offer something to them um, for good health and and prosperity. It's fascinating learning about Daryl's culture and spiritual practices. I wonder what it was like for him growing up as a kid in Darwin. In my days, never saw myself particularly as Chinese at this particular school. Um, we're just another one of the, the group. Um, I consider my friends to be United Nations, um, having someone from every ethnic background. That was, that was the greatness of it all. I mean, we, we saw differences, sure, but we also um, saw so many similarities and, and really race wasn't an issue. I mean, to have a Greek friend and have Greek food or have any other sort of friend, Aboriginal friend, it was just just part of growing up. I don't like to say we're a melting pot, we're all in together and we all just all mix up. I think we're all in together but we all have our differences and let's, let's you know, celebrate those differences. That's what makes the spice of life. Thanks to Daryl Chin for sharing his knowledge and his story. Look out for a lion or a dragon dance the next time you're in Darwin. Or even better, head over to the Chinese Museum to learn more about the fascinating history of our Chinese community.
In the next episode, we'll chat to Nabila Majid, whose family owns Darwin's iconic Indonesian restaurant, Sari Rasa. When she got Sari Rasa was when it all changed for her. She got to cook using, you know, her foundations that she learnt from her mum. And then not only that, she got to see that people from all different cultures and backgrounds were enjoying her food. Saudi Plum Stories is a City of Darwin podcast produced by Laura Uden and Cinnamon Nippard with editorial support from Johanna Bell and mixing by Hamish Robertson. The incredible soundtrack was composed and mixed by Kuya James and Tatut Malut. For more information, head to the Discover Darwin website. I hope to see you in Darwin, Garamilla, on my beautiful Larrakia country soon. If you want to hear some yarns from my people, search Saltwater Stories of the Larrakia. I'm Nicole Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>